part, July here. Uh, welcome to all who are, uh, who've, who've come. Uh, we're going to have a chance to have a sermonion here, so half sermon, half communion. We'll be able to take communion after the sermon, uh, so a little bit different than usual. And uh, God's held off any sort of uh, uh, torrential downpour for us, which is a good thing. Uh, and so, also just to add on to the announcements, um, if you're unable, if you're unable to give today, we always have the website in order to give. Uh, BlueRidge.Church. All our information's on at the website. You can give on the website. There's a button at the top that says Simple Give. You can also download an app on your phone that's called Givelify. You can also give that way as well. Uh, but thanks everyone. Uh, it's going to be awesome today. I was a little bit um, saddened. Because on the schedule today is Josiah, to preach on Josiah. For all of us who have the packet for the summer, we're going through the theme uh, of, of transformation by the Holy Spirit. And this summer, especially, we're looking at uh, the summer of love and how we can know God's love better and deeper and stronger, and that can inform and govern our then love for one another. Yeah. And I told myself, I thought, oh, no, because at an outdoor service, at best, I have like 20 minutes of people's attention before like, I lose it for good. Like at best, right? It's already, I've already lost some, but like outdoor people are like, you know, like there's nothing, it's rough. So what we're gonna do, what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at one really good aspect of Josiah today. And then Wednesday, we're gonna finish up, okay? So Wednesday night, seven o'clock at Burnley Moran, we're gonna look at the rest because I don't wanna, I don't want to cut down the word of God. I think there's a lot to take from this story, from the example of Josiah and how he then prefigures Christ. So we're going to look at a little bit this morning. The title of my lesson this morning is Who is on the Throne? Who is on the Throne? And we're going to begin in 2 Kings 23. We've been looking a lot at 2 Kings, so hopefully we know where that is. 2 Kings chapter 23. If you can't find it, it's right after 1 Kings. <laughs> 2 Kings uh, 23. So what we've looked at so far, we've had a chance to look at Elijah. we looked at Elisha. We've looked at the Shunammite woman. Uh, we've looked at Ruth. We've looked at Leah. We've looked at Noah. We've looked at Moses. We've looked at Sarah. So a lot of great examples in the Bible and examples of people uh, who do their best but also are flawed people. They make mistakes. They have sh uh, shortcomings. In some cases, those shortcomings are very easy to see. Did I start this, by the way, Aaron? I did. You did. Okay, good. He's on it. Come on, Aaron. Come on, Aaron. I would have had to start over. <laughs> Welcome. So, uh, we've looked at a lot of people in the Old Testament. So, with Josiah, Josiah is one of my very, very, very favorites because he comes in a long line of evil kings. Uh, there's been a lot of evil. This is going to take place in the mid-7th century uh, BCE, where Josiah comes to rule uh, as king of Judah. And some of us can ex experience that. We don't have a legacy of faith in our family. Uh, we come into a situation where all we really know is worldliness. Our parents, as good as, and, uh, as good as their intentions were, were not, in some cases, holy or righteous or not Bible-driven. So we come in, into a life, and I actually am very... Uh, I live in awe of my parents because my parents, as great as my grandparents are, my parents did not have a godly example of what parenting was. So my parents really had to really use the Bible and get a lot of help from others to be able to uh, be the awesome parents that they are. Not without a lot of shortcomings. I won't talk about those this morning <laughs> because my mom listens to the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, so my parents and their awesome, amazing faith 
they really had to, to, to build using just scripture and others. But they didn't really have, a, oh, let's just do what mom did or dad did. And a lot of us, we don't necessarily have that. We come into a situation where we're, we, we don't really have a legacy of faith. Also, we can be in a situation in the world almost always where we're surrounded by worldliness. Right. We're surrounded by evil. And I think the scary situation with, with, with Israel is that there was an expectation for them to be godly. Okay. They're Israel. They're God's chosen nation. The word means, you know, the word Israel, it's, it's, it's wrestles with God. It's a relationship with God. How could they drift? And for those of us this morning that some of us are very aware of our stance with God. We're coming in this morning thinking, you know what, I'm not right with God. Perhaps you've been studying the Bible and realizing that and you are realizing more and more the need to repent, to get baptized, to, to live a life of faith. But some of us, I think, also feel like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do anything that awful. I'm here this morning, right? You know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been a Christian for 20 years or 30 years or my whole life or whatever, whatever uh, we think. And it can be easy to think, oh, yeah, I'm, but you're Israel. And there is still the danger of drifting. Oh, yeah. There is still the danger to come to a place where you look around and go, how did I get to this point? How did we get here? Right. And I think we have to realize that and be aware this morning that that's a very real possibility for each and every one of us. Yeah. Because we can all be just like that frog in the kettle. Yeah. For those of us that know, this, you know the, the popular metaphor that you can put a frog in a kettle at lukewarm temperature and you can raise the temperature uh, incrementally over time and the frog won't know that he's boiling. And the frog will actually boil alive because it's, the change is so small that he doesn't even notice a difference. And so for a lot of us, we can be, we can be that frog. They're like, oh, it's all good. But really, we, we don't see that we're boiling. We don't see that we're actually in a situation where we need to repent. I want to begin with the end here, as seems fitting. Second uh, Kings 23, verse 25. We're going to do a little bit of reading this morning. So hopefully that's okay. Second Kings 23, verse 25. Listen to this. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him. Let that sink in for a second. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him. Now, one king comes to mind for me in the Old Testament who's kind of a big deal, and that's David, yeah. right? Man after God's own heart. He actually unites the, the tribes of Israel. He solidifies the kingdom. Then I think of Solomon, the smartest, wisest guy in the, wor the, wisest guy in the world. He doubles the size of David's kingdom. But they weren't like Josiah. There was never a king like Josiah. And the question this morning we're going to look at is what made Josiah different? What made the Holy Spirit pen this verse. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. So we read that and we go, well, what did this guy do? What made him so incredible? Let's go, let's rewind back to the beginning and we'll start in chapter 22. What really made Josiah this kind of king? Verse 1, chapter 22, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Wow. Wow, eight. Luke's nine, right? Luke, nine, eight? Eight. 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 Seven. So Luke, you're king, man. You did it. What's your first edict? Chocolate milk in the water fountains. That was always the promise in school. Right? I elected a lot of school presidents, and I never got the chocolate milk in the water fountains. So Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. 
His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Boscoth. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Once again, whoa. What's this guy done that's made him so special? Verse 8. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Hold on. If you lose the Bible in the church, that's not a good thing. We lost the Bible in the church. We don't know where it is. But that's where Israel was. They had misplaced the book of the law. Basically, a lot of people think this is either the first five books of the Bible or at least it's Deuteronomy. So they, 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 the high priest, imagine me coming to you guys and say, guys, I found the Bible. But what, what state were we, would we be in as a church if we had lost the Bible? If we had lost biblical truth in our lives? This is a very real situation that Josiah enters into. And once again, it's the danger of being religious but not being biblical. It's the danger of knowing how to play the game. I grew up in the church. I knew how to play the game. I knew what to say. I knew, I know which, which words to use to get people kind of off my case so that I could really live how I wanted to. You know, I knew how to play. I knew how to be religious, but I, I didn't know. I needed to be taught how to be biblical. I needed to be taught how to live with truth and not just to know the rules and try to manipulate them to my own, to my own ends. Um, and, and so it's, why I studied the Bible for so long, to be honest, because I, I had to really work through so much deception, manipulation, pride, arrogance uh, to really begin to see that. But this is the reality, and this is where we can be at times. So Hakiah goes to Josiah, goes to Shaphan, and says, hey, I found Deuteronomy. Um, how, how is the book misplaced? Now, a lot of people think one of the really, actually, in ancient and modern times, what people would do is put very important documents in the cornerstone of a building. And what that, what that says, we actually, my wife and I went to Israel along with the Balshes a couple years ago. The cornerstone is this massive stone that keeps the building together. It's huge. It's this massive stone in the temple, right? So what, what, what perhaps happened is that when Solomon builds the temple 300 years before Josiah, they put the Pentateuch, they put Deuteronomy in the cornerstone. And it's 300 years, and perhaps it was God back then. For, you know, providential pro- promise just kind of allowing this to happen so that the Bible's there. They misplace the Bible. They don't have scripture. They find the book of the law in the, probably the cornerstone, which I think is pretty cool because the Bible should be the cornerstone of our lives. It should be what we rely on more than anything else. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and I've entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. <laughs> I love that. King's like, what book? Right? And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. Now, that was pretty, uh, pretty common in ancient times was to tear your robes to basically signify the tearing of your heart. It was, I'm indignant, I'm angry, I can't believe what's just happened. It was supposed to signify, I'm going to stop, I'm going to change. It was an outward sign, kind of, of what's going on underneath. And the king, imagine, you're the king of Israel, the king of God's people, and you have never heard the scriptures. You've never heard them. He, he didn't know. And here, let's see what he does next. And I think the question for us this morning, how, do we, how would we respond? How did we respond when we first read the scriptures? 
For a lot of us, when we first read the scriptures, it was so clear. Oh, what? You're saying I got to forgive or else he won't forgive me? All right, let's do it. What, you're saying that go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I can. Let's do it. Baptize all nations. Repent and be baptized. Oh, yeah, I can do that. You're talking about, talking about what? Deny yourself and carry your cross daily? You're talking about hate your mother, hate your father, hate your own life? Count the cost? I can do that. Is that still true to us today? Do we still see the scriptures the same way? Because the question this morning is who's on the throne? Now, in this case, Josiah was. Right? He's the king. And then he reads the Bible and he realizes, you know what? I can't be on the throne. God's got to be on the throne. And if we skip down to chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people, from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commandments, statutes, decrees, with all his heart and his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. I love that. What's the first thing Josiah does? He says, we got to change. We've got to pledge ourselves to what's written in this book. Josiah does a lot of amazing things, and we can talk about all those things. But it only ever matters if we're willing to get off the throne. Are you willing to get off the throne? What does that mean? It means you're in charge of your life. It means you're in charge of decision making. You know, you're the CEO. You're the commander in chief. And a lot of us are involved uh, in Christianity but we're not committed. A lot of us are involved. God's involved in our lives, but we're not committed to God. You know, uh, I used to hear growing up, involved versus committed is a lot like ham and eggs. The chicken was involved, but that pig was committed. You know, and a lot of us, we're like the chicken. You know, we're involved, but we're not committed. There's an aspect of commitment that involves surrender. And I think surrender is the hardest part of commitment. Yeah. Because surrender is willing to obey even when you don't agree. Yeah. And we live in a world where I understand that there's a good aspect. You need to make your own decisions. You need to have your own convictions. Yeah. But there's also a humility. And sometimes the humility only comes after 300 years of evil. Mm-hmm. Like here with Josiah. Yeah. It took 300 years of evil for them to wake up. Yeah. I pray that's not the case for us. Right. That we actually have to do it our own way long enough to feel the pain long enough to wake up. But God in his grace will allow that to happen. Just so that you can see where you stand. But I want to ask us this morning, how have you struggled to surrender? We struggle to surrender. We have a lot of times expectations of how things should go. And when those expectations are not met, we complain, we get angry, we get frustrated, we pull back from God. We have expectations of things we want in life luxuries, pleasures, uh, things we think that we're supposed to have, especially in America. Uh, it's really easy to think, I need to have this. I'm supposed to have this. Uh, I, can, I can feel that in our, in our marriage sometimes. Like, oh man, this couple does all these expensive things. We should do all these expensive things. Or this couple has all these things. They have this nice house and they have the nice school. 
And you can feel the pressure of like, man, I feel the financial pressure already. Like, how oh, do we have the money for that? Like, can we do that? Can we give our kids these things? But nowhere is, is it written that we're supposed to, the kids are supposed to have those things. But Satan can put the pressure on us. Uh, when you're in school, you can feel like, I, I, I have to do well in school. I have to beat, uh, you know, uh, Joe Four Eyes over here. I have to beat him. I have his, he's the smartest guy. And I, have to, I have to win. I have to be smartest. I have to get a good job. I have to, be, I have to please my parents. I have to please my friends. And I, I wonder who's on the throne. Are your friends on the throne? Is your job on the throne? But who's making, who's calling the shots? Man, it's exciting to think about anymore. Even for myself, you know, we've been able to, I've been able to be in a few Bible studies recently. And I've even in my own self, I've had to reassess my own heart toward studying the Bible with somebody who wants to be a disciple, you know. Because after like two hours, I'm usually like, well, that's probably enough. We should probably wrap it up. But then I think, well, hold on, don't make that call. Don't say, oh, we're done. Open it up. Say, hey, we can keep going. We can keep looking at this the rest of the day. This is the most important thing we'll do today. Are you willing to look at this? We can continue through the night to look at these scriptures. Are you willing to? But for me, I was kind of unconsciously putting a cap on it. I was thinking, oh, two hours, that's about enough. You know, and it comes from a good heart, but I realized we can do that in the church. We can do that where we start to kind of, oh, that's enough. I didn't, you know, I looked at uh, a movie, you know, it had some sexually impure scenes, but it wasn't like that bad. It's, enough. it's okay. And we start to get like the frog in the kettle when we allow concessions. Or, yeah. Like, I, I haven't forgiven her, but I, you know, I'm not like angry at her. I'm not like, I don't hate her, but, but you still avoid her or you, or you harbor bitterness toward her. And that's okay. That's a good enough. No one can blame me for that. Oh, you know what? I haven't uh, been making disciples, right? I haven't been in a Bible study in a year or six months with someone who's seeking to become a disciple. But you know what? So is this other guy. He hasn't been in the study for a long time with, with a seeker. Like, that's okay. That's enough. I'm doing enough. And, you know, I have a lot, of, a lot on my plate right now, you know, with, with the kids and with my job and with my marriage and with finances and you name it, right? Right. We begin, we start off with bring it on. You know, we start off with let's do it. You know, I didn't ask him if I could share this, but hopefully it's okay, Caden. But we've been studying the Bible with Caden. We finished repentance and baptism study yesterday, and I said, how do you feel? And Caden said, like, running through a wall. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And so, like, but it took, it took that study for me to be like, that's what I felt too. That's what I felt too. Have, have I allowed Satan to begin to edge me toward boiling? Have I allowed Satan to start to allow me to be comfortable or to, have, to manage my expectations of what God can do in your life or what God can do in the life of the community in Charlottesville? This is why Josiah is so incredible, because he had all power, and he gives it up, right? He says, no longer am I the authority in Israel. The Bible's the authority in Israel. God is going to choose what's right and wrong. That's what I usually share with folks when they ask questions about, well, why did God do this? Why did God do that? And we can talk about a lot of consequences in my experience, but the bottom line is, he's God, and you're not. Yeah. And that's our fundamental issue, is we, we think, oh, but, I, but has God ever considered this way of thinking, you know, like this cool, I read an article last night, you know, and I have this new way of thinking, and it's like, okay, but are you willing to get off the throne? Are you willing to obey what God has called you to do? Which areas do you find that you're reluctant to obey, or that you just completely disobey? Nowhere is it written, some, some a teenager has to wait until they're like 17 or 18 to get baptized. Now, 
In some cases, that's, that's, that's God's plan for you. And that's awesome. But I think sometimes we think, oh, like, uh, that's not, that doesn't fit my expectation of my kid. My expectation for my kid is to, to you know, like, go, go into the world and experience it a little bit and then come back in and then they can, well, let go of what your expectations are for your kid. Right. Let them seek God. Help them. Whether it's 13 or 50, help your kids seek God. Yeah. It doesn't matter what age they're at, but I think sometimes our expectations hamper our kids and they, they hurt our kids. You know, we got to allow our kids. All, all my siblings were different. My sister got baptized like, at the, like right when she turned 13. My sister, I mean, myself when I was 14 and my brother when he was 15, but we all had different struggles. We're all different people, right? right? My core sin was arrogance. I still struggle with arrogance. My brother, he's a deceitful people pleaser. You're a deceitful people pleaser, John Mark. He's going to listen to me. And, uh, and uh, my sister, my sister, right, she's got self-righteousness to her. We, we all know, but we're all aware of it. We all know it. We can all speak candidly about it. Like, this was, this was us. But we're different. How are our expectations? We've got to get off the throne, church. We've got to get off the throne. Even our expectations of how church service should go. Our expectations of how friendships should go. Our expectations of what she's not doing for me, what I want her to do for me. Or she's not meeting my expectations as a friend. We've got to let go of these things. Let the Bible dictate. How are you doing in friendship? We've got to read Matthew 7 and say, how's the plank in your eye? You're really good with other people's specs. How are you with the two by four sticking out of your head? How are you with that? Are you aware of it? Do you talk about it? We're really, really, really good at knowing other people's sin. We're experts in our spouse's sin. We're like PhD experts in our spouse's sin. And how are you doing? How's your plank? We've got to let the Bible dictate our lives. Because here's the thing, it's been 2,000 plus years. The Bible's never changed. Right. I've studied it out, and best I can see, the truth has never changed. We change a lot. God has seen the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. God has seen the rise and fall of the Mongolian Empire. God saw the Renaissance. God saw the Enlightenment. You know, God saw these things, and we're going, wow, but humans can achieve so much. And hey, listen, right, if we work together, sure, we can get some things done. But you know what? We're not God. We're not God. We've got to start to get off the throne and let God be in charge. Let God, because it actually goes a lot better when God's in charge. When I was in my fraternity, uh, I had a lot of deep talks with people who were slightly inebriated. And uh, one of the guys I talked to, actually guys usually opened up a lot more, which is interesting, interesting phenomenon. But a guy came to me, I became like the pastor of the fraternity. It was kind of funny. I would sit in my room and guys would come in like crying and be like, I hate my life. And I'd be like, tell me about how you're doing. You know, um, have a seat. Uh, what's going on? But uh, I remember this guy once, he was like, what do, you, what do you do here? And I said, well, this is what the Bible says. This is scripture. He said, what do you do here? And I said, well, this is what the Bible said. He goes, what kind of girl do you date? And I said, well, this is what the Bible says. And I kept saying that. And he goes, aren't you, aren't you tired of letting Bible, the Bible dictate your life? And I was like, hey, in what little time I had in dictating my own life, I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> I, I'd much rather have God call the shots than my own self. You know? And so for us this morning, who's on the throne? Josiah decided that he was going to own it. Young man. He was going to own it. Take the, I found the book of the law. Let's read it together. I love it how, how it's us, right? right? Josiah doesn't say, man, my dad never taught me. My grandpa was the worst. All you people are worldly and struggling. I got to get out of here. I got to move. I got to move down to Samaria. Or, you know, I got to go up north. I got to go down south. He doesn't do that. He says, let's get together. Let's read the scripture together. And can we pledge? Can we make a commitment to follow it? What do the people feel? I love how the Bible says they gathered from least to greatest. I don't know who the least guy was, 
but he was probably pumped. He was like, yeah, I'm the least. I'm here. Bring it on. Let's do it. I got invited to the party, right? But here, everyone's there, and Josiah says, he's, and he's, he's king in their eyes, but he says, you know what? I'm not. The Bible is. God is. God is king. What's stopping you this morning from allowing God to be king? I want to close out with something they actually would have read that day in Deuteronomy 10. As they read the book of Deuteronomy, this is something they would have read. One of the things that Josiah is trying to help his people see, it is so difficult to enact change. Not just in yourself. It's really hard with just yourself. Imagine trying to enact wholesale change in a church of 80. Repentance, corporate repentance in a church of 80. Difficult. Now imagine a nation. It's difficult. Um, and so as Josiah comes here and he reads the book of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 10, one of the things he's going to say here is a popular phrase. Verse 16, Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise your hearts. That alone is an incredible phrase because what he's saying is this isn't about your identity as a Jew. This is not about showing who you are through circumcision, like, oh, I I identify as a Jew. I don't care, and God doesn't care who you identify with. God cares your definition. He doesn't care about your identification. He cares about your definition. Who are you? Is your heart circumcised, or is it just the outside? Uh, you got to rend your heart, not your garments. And so he reads here, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Basically, get off the throne, right? (laughs) For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, amen? For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. I love this. What's he saying is you're going to be tempted. And he actually says this in chapter 8 in Deuteronomy. Once you start to see some success, you're going to be tempted to think it was your own doing. Once the grapes start to come into harvest, once things start going your way, you're going to be tempted to be prideful. God knew it. He warned them. He says, but remember, God is God of gods. Jesus is Lord of lords. As we think about God this morning and getting off the throne, it's hard. I've been yelling at you for about 20 minutes to get off the throne. it's, It's one thing to kind of consciously acknowledge it. I think what's more powerful is when you see what God's done for you. Look at what the scripture says. He says, listen, God loves the foreigner. You know, we all are foreigners. We all are alienated from, we were all were alienated from God at one point. Yeah. Uh, or we're alienated now, right? We're foreigners now. God loves, God loves you. God is there for you. God is God of gods, and he loves you. The same guy who saw each civilization rise and fall, the same God who's been here for... <laughs> Endless millennia. The same God who understands things we're still trying to grasp. He loves you. And that reminds me of Jesus. That Jesus, that our God sent Jesus for us. To love us. His one job, his one goal. 
was to come down and be a sacrifice for you. Not even to like come down and, uh, I mean, he did want to live a perfect life because it's a very complete salvation. Not only did Jesus die to die, you should have died the death, you should have died, but he also lived the life you should have lived. But Jesus came down simply as sacrifice. And remember Jesus in the garden. We talk about this a lot. Jesus in the garden, what does he pray for? I don't want to do this. Even Jesus is struggling with God's plan. But he has to say, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. It took Jesus three hours of prayer to get his heart right, to, to humble himself to God's plan. If it took Jesus, the son of God, three hours to get his heart right toward a decision he did not agree with, how long is it going to take us? I think we pray for a little bit and we go, ah, oh, it's not working, right? But Jesus was eager. He knew, Jesus knew that God was God and he wasn't. He knew that God was calling the shots. As much as Jesus was fully God on earth, he still at this point was stumbling. He was struggling in the garden as he prayed, take this cup from me. But he submitted to God's will. So I want to let that be for us an encouragement this morning. As we see Josiah, as great as Josiah was, Josiah dies at the age of 39 and the kingdom goes back to being evil. As great as Josiah was, he enacted change at most for over 100 years. But we have a Jesus who enacted change for eternity. We have a Jesus who didn't just come down and say, you got to obey. He said, no, follow my example. I'm not going to call you to do anything I haven't done myself. Jesus lived the life. He sacrificed himself for you, knowing full well how you would live, what you would do, how you would be obstinate, you know, and recalcitrant pretty much um, over and over again. But he still died for you. And that makes me want to get off the throne more than anything else. When I see Jesus, I want to get off, get off that thing. Yeah. It's when I'm only seeing myself, it's hard to get off. When I see all the things that are going to hurt me, when I have worldly sorrow, when I see all the problems I'm going to have, when I see being a disciple is going to be hard for me, or I can't do that because it's hard for me, or you have to understand what I'm going through. When the word me or I is dominating my, my, my conversation, mm-hmm. then I'm on the throne. I'm not seeing Jesus. So for us, church, the challenge is to see Jesus. See Jesus every morning. Take that pledge. Go to the book of the law. Go to the scriptures. Look at Jesus and make a, a conscious decision every morning that day to get off the throne. Every day this week. What if we all did that this week? What if each and every one of us this week, this is crazy, but we can do it. What if each and every one of us in the morning was able to have time with God and to make that pledge every day? Today, I'm going to let God call the shots. And if you're not sure what that means or unsure of what that means, reach out to somebody, call somebody, dive into the scriptures. But I'm going to get off the throne today. That would be a great week. How many people would call you? How many people would text you? How you doing? How's your day been? How can I pray for you? How many people would offer to help? How many people would offer to babysit so you and your wife could go on a date? How many people would say, hey, come over for dinner. I, got, I made a little extra food. Come over for dinner. I know you're having a hard time you know, right now. Hey, how's your dad at the hospital? How's your mom? How many people would reach out to you this week if it was just one week of us doing that? It would be the greatest week of all time because we've decided to get off the throne, to stop living for ourselves once again, and to live for Christ every day. We're going to have a chance to be able to pray here and take communion. As we take communion, uh, I want to encourage us. It's a time. It's great to be able to remember. Obviously, the point is to take this bread, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. Uh, Take the wine. Grape juice. Take the grape juice. Um, 
drink this, this is my blood poured out for you, do this in remembrance of me. I just want to encourage us this morning, let's just remember Jesus. Let's picture Jesus, let's imagine what it would have been like to see him heal one of the kids, to be able to stop the stoning of the woman. Just remember Jesus this morning. And we're going to be able to pray together and have that time, and then we'll close out. Let's set up our heads. Dear Lord in heaven, God, thank you so much for today. God, we're so grateful for examples like the one with Josiah. God, so long ago, God, over 2,500 years ago, God, to see his, uh, God, humility, to be able to allow you, God, to call the shots. God, to, to allow you to be in, in charge, God, of what happens in your nation of Israel. God, I pray for each one of us this morning. God, I pray for any of us this morning who are not uh, baptized disciples, God, that we would make the decision to become them. God, that we would throw out all expectations and study the Bible as long as it takes, God, to be able to get to a point where we're right with you. God, that we would not allow the world to dictate how we live, God, not allow expectations, but to allow you. God, that you are our God, that you are our greatest love. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us a God, giving us a, a sacrifice who loves us, God, who sacrificed for us. God, I pray we can remember Jesus. God, we can remember his love, his mercy, God, his discernment. Uh, God, his, his love for the foreigner, for his love for both, both men and women, for children. God, as he just laid out his life for all of those, God, who, uh, God, who were both part of uh, your family and also not. God, thank you for all these things in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen.